Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Welcome to Zane Lowe's interview series. I'm Eddie from Zane Show, and Zane's out this week, so I'm here to introduce this week's conversation. Country superstar Marin Morris's third major label album, Humble Quest, is a window into her mind during two of the most unprecedented, cathargic, and life-changing years she's experienced today. She gave birth to her first child with her husband and chasing after you collaborator Ryan Hurd, mourned the loss of Busby, one of her dearest friends and closest colleagues, and weathered the uncertainty of the COVID-19 pandemic without knowing when or how she and her band would return to the road. So it made sense that she would sit down with Zane and dive deep into a conversation around those experiences. Marin joined Zane in studio to talk about her new album, her Apple Country music show Humble Quest Radio, and a lot more. Here's that conversation. You get to a place in your life where you chase and you run and you chase and you run and you achieve and you and you you gather and you you collate and then you take yeah. a step back and you have to ask yourself some other questions you haven't faced for a while and I feel that you're asking mm-hmm. a lot of questions on this album in a great way. Yeah, thank you. It's so fun to be able to talk about it. It's just been mine the last year. Yeah, it's been in the can for a year, and so wow. um, there were so many times last year in 2021 that I was like, "Let's just put it out. Don't even think about it." And I'm glad that we did not do that. Me too. Um, <laughs> Normally, I would encourage that behavior in in the metaverse of of the modern age, but with an yeah. album this important, that's that that covers so much ground for you personally, it would have been a shame just to let it go, rush it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad that we were intentional with our timing and just starting this year with something positive. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm just. Excited to talk about it finally. Yeah, excited to see you. Speaking of which, I mean, how exciting to be able to once again, you know, share the performance space with, you know, your husband, which is just so awesome. I mean, hearing the chemistry of you two on these records, and I I have to really um, commend him for creating such a strong, supportive performance on this album. And just, you can tell how much he loves you and is just leaning into the songs in this really beautiful way. No, thank you. And he was, yeah, definitely the touchstone on this one. And part of it was just circumstantial because we were stuck in the house for two years, but (laughs) not just from COVID, but our baby was born at the beginning of 2020. So us both being songwriters, after a few months of like learning to be new parents, it was like, should we start? being creative again. Like, I don't know, what are we doing this for? There's no touring. Um, So it was sort of this free fall of not being able to tour or write towards a a direction. And I feel like that freed us up to write about whatever we wanted. There's so much that I want to talk about with regards to this album, but I I want to start with where it started for you. Mm-hmm. which I don't often cover much anymore. I don't know why. I guess you're always searching for new angles and new ways to have conversations. But I, but when I listen to this album start to finish, it feels like you've been on this journey. So I want to know where the journey started, if that's okay. The time frame, I suppose, started when I wrote Hummingbird because I wrote that the day that I found out I was pregnant. And I was on my way to a write. And we, you know, had sort of been attempting to get pregnant for a few months, but it happened very quickly. And I was on my way to a co-write with the Love Junkies, which if you don't know, in Nashville, um, Lori McKenna, Hillary Lindsay, and Liz Rose, who have written countless songs. But the trio of them is the Love Junkies. And so I found out I was pregnant and I called Ryan on the way to my right with them and told him the news. And we were so excited. And then I got to my right and I just felt like, I'm going to share this with these three women. They're all badass songwriters and they're all mothers. So I felt like it was a really safe space to share that information. It was a huge day. And then we wrote Hummingbird. So that really was the first song that was written for this album. But obviously after that, um, the pandemic started, I had my son 
And I wasn't worried about being an artist at that time. Yeah. I was just recovering and learning about being a parent. And so, uh, but I came back to the recording process and writing again. And I just listened to Hummingbird. And by the time I was recording it, uh, Hayes, my son, was starting to talk. So he's at the very beginning of that song saying, Mama. So I was like, this is so cyclical. How did this happen? Like this started with Hummingbird about having this new life. And then by the time we're able to even put it on tape, it's, uh, he's talking. So he's, he's on the album. He's my feature. And he's your one He's feature. the only feature on this. <laughs> no points though. I can't do it. It all goes to him in the end anyway. Yeah, uh, right. I know. He's, <laughs> he's in the will. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, when you, when you become a parent and you realize that um, this whole journey being on up to a certain point, at least this happens for a lot of people I know, maybe not for everybody, but uh, to some degree, it stops you in your tracks and makes you re really reassess. It's an obvious statement, but you don't really understand it until you go through it. Um, you take a look at what occupied your time before and a lot of it falls away. Mm -hmm. You have to really kind of audit yourself and figure out what matters to you because you have to make a lot of time and a lot of emotional space to be able to take this on. Yeah. You said before you were focusing on being a mother and recovering and obviously being within the, the confines of a global pandemic. Um, I, I sort of wonder, you know, whether that at all made you think about music differently when it came to coming back and rewriting it or your perspective changed in any way. I mean, I think until you have a child, whether it's your own or adopted or however you, you get this life in your home and you, I don't know, I just always feel so anxious and protective, obviously, but I think you just feel like an exposed nerve at all times. Yep. That's kind of been the biggest well lesson. I guess the way it's affected me as a songwriter thus far has been coming at things a little bit more raw and vulnerable, um, which is great, but it's also really scary and I'm such a control freak that this whole experience, not just of motherhood or parenthood, of just being out of control um, with my job um, and that security of being able to tour, being taken away for so long, all of it was a lesson in letting go. There's the title right there, The Humble Quest. And, yeah. I, and I love that song because it really speaks to the human experience of you'll never truly get there. Hmm. There's a lot of that in this album, this idea of um, accepting that you'll never truly have the answers that you crave and that control is sort of ultimately a bit of a fool's game. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, we're all here for such a finite amount of time. And I know you could just throw every cliche saying at the wall right now. But yeah, yeah I it was really cathartic and refreshing to just know that we never were in control. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, my job is like this vessel of feelings and vulnerabilities to just timestamp whatever I'm or the world is going through. Yeah, but ultimately, when I was listening to all these demos of these songs that are on Humble Quest, I just felt happy. I didn't feel, I mean, I felt released even with some of the darker songs, like What Would This World Do? I did feel like it was healing me in whatever I was drowning in. So I did want to leave the listener because ultimately it's like you, you can scream in an echo chamber as long as you want, but eventually the songs have to be heard by somebody besides you. Yep. And I just, I guess my hope is when people hear this, it will feel therapeutic and light. That's why I said it was light. And I understood now you told me the story, how important that song is to you and when, and the creation of it is different to the, 
to the to to me absorbing it. But when I was hearing it this morning, my son's next to me. I'm driving him to school, and I'm like, all right, this is a hard one because as a parent, it's cutting me to the core of my biggest fear. But equally, I felt there was light in that. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's two sides of a coin, and darkness is there to to make us see light a little bit better. And I think that that's ultimately what we've been through as a human race. And uh, and I didn't want to make this like quarantine pandemic album. I mean, I wanted it to live beyond the last two uh, dumpster fire years. Thank goodness for small mercies that we haven't been faced with a lot of artists leaning into that space. There's been very little in, in terms of quarantine subject matter, thank goodness. Like, let's not. <laughs> and say so we did. Mara Morris, is so good to see you. And I, I just, I really can't say this enough. This new album to me is just the sum of all of you. I think it speaks to not only your most personal writing, but also uh, your, all, what I know to be thus far, your your own personal passions for music. Um, You know, there's the harder edge driving, more rock influence in there still. There's beautiful, you know, touches of pop music and the melodies are unmistakable when it comes to pop. But then you've also got this beautiful folk song and of course, country music side to it too. I feel like this is a complete picture, is it not? Yeah, I think it's probably the rootsiest of all my three records. Um, it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways just because we stripped so much back of Hero, my first album. Because, I mean, I think like, where do you go after you know, a song like The Bones, it, it just really floored me that yeah. it did what it did. Are you kidding? The first time I heard that, I was like, well, everyone else can shut up shop now. That's definitely <laughs> the one for the year. I mean, that song is ridiculous. Thanks. I mean, it's crazy. You but get I one mean, of those in a lifetime. You got a bunch, but that's crazy. Oh, thank you. I mean, but it's like, I don't really know where you go after that one. And it was very, um, I mean, it was obviously about such a bigger subject than what I wrote it about. It just morphed into this world healing song. But I, yeah, with that doing what it did and then going into album three writing mode. I was just like, I, and also I wasn't around in the room because of the pandemic with a ton of track guys. So Greg Kirsten, who's like the, the legend and um so humble, <laughs> like to talk about. I call him always on because everyone tells me the instruments are always on. Yes. And it's just such a, a live album. And I just say that meaning that there's not tracks happening it's yeah. it's not programming it's yeah. it's all live and it feels alive like the vibrations are alive and so yeah it's it's just I don't know if it was the times but it just didn't feel right to make this like super poppy record for me which isn't to say it's not not poppy I mean there's definitely moments on there that I feel you know you on any other album you could sort of chuck this down on your on your team's desk and say right singles one two and three go to work <laughs> but it's really not that when you listen to it that's that's your point i think which is like when you when you start start to finish it all intertwines in this really kind of overall complete picture yeah. were there more songs i mean did you work in a very deliberate concise way or did you have to pick and cherry pick in the end to to come together with the final 11 uh, i think there were a few that didn't make it to the cutting room but not floor. a ton not a ton. I mean, I wrote with what I had, which was very uh, few days to do this. But I, with every song, it just clicked into place. And I didn't feel for the first time like I overthought anything. Yeah, I just was thinking to myself, I could redo these mixes till I'm blue in the face. I could write 10 more times, but I feel like this is it. This is the album. Yeah. And I just already could, I always know when it's done, when I can hear it at a live show, like in my mind. Hmm. So yeah, sometimes you just don't continue nitpicking because it'll never be done. Like you could just till you're 
blue in the face. That's a very uncontrol freak thing to say, right? which is really interesting because I know how um, focused you are and how clear and 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 concise you are when it comes to delivering on your vision at any given moment. But to have the ability to be able to also say, well, I need to make space to go and play these and make another record, another record, another record is like it. There's a chink in your control freak armor there, I think. It's probably for the best, at least for my mental health. I don't know the songs reflect that, but um, I feel like they do. It's just so nice even now to like work again. And I love, you know, being a mother, that's been such a, a jewel in this crown of mine. But I truly think the best thing I can do as a mother, as just a human being is, you know, continue writing and helping people if they hear a song and it hits them a certain way. I feel like that's what my purpose really is. Well, you speak to that on background music beautifully. And I, I love that song for that reason. I, I, I'm i not sure I can think of another song which speaks to the legacy of artists and the, the joy and privilege of being able to leave souvenirs, as you call them, but mm. also to recognize that all things must fade. Yeah. I think there's a beauty in that temporariness. And I wrote it for Ryan, my husband. We're both artists, but we also know that like this is not forever. And if anything, sorry to keep bringing up COVID, but if that taught us anything, it was that nothing is really certain and you cannot plan that far out into the future. You just have to kind of stay in. And so I liked the idea of I mean, the mortality aspect, obviously, like at some point we're not going to be here anymore and maybe our songs will still be played. But ultimately, like we cannot value our relationship or our love off of this one window of time because at some point, I don't know if I'll ever retire. It will probably wheel me off stage, but and like to the morgue. But I um, I definitely think that at some point, like the glittery part of this is not going to be around the same. I mean, we all have windows of success. And sure. at some point, like unless you're Paul McCartney or the Rolling Stones, like it usually tapers off at some but point. Isn't, but to some degree, isn't that, I, I think even in, the, in those examples, I can't speak for the Stones because that's complicated. There's you know, traditionally five of them, I think now ultimately three remaining original, semi-original stones. But with the with the Beatles, with Paul McCartney in particular, it depends how you measure success for yourself. Like, okay, you've had the bones, you've had the middle, you've tasted and touched all these incredible, very high frequency spaces. But for you to, what background music says to me is that you and Ryan are putting into context what matters to you mm -hmm. and everyone else can follow, which by the way, traditionally and historically opens doors that artists don't actually see through the, through the lens of ambition. And I think for me, it's being happy, obviously. Yeah, first. Um, but longevity is so much Isn't it sweeter. subjective? Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I think I'm, and I'm not trying to be a downer or anything. I'm actually um, very optimistic and I'm a realist, but yeah, this is not going to be forever. Uh, whether that means your life or your um, hits, uh, I feel like at some point you just, I don't know, I, I just, it doesn't depress me anymore to think about it in those terms. I just think about the fact that I even got to do this at all and make a living at it and make a pretty good one. And I, I don't know, I'm pretty simple with like what I love and my attachments. So I will do this as long as I can. But that song with background music, it was sort of a, a promise to Ryan that no matter what, this is not the make or break is us doing this for a living. Like we love it, but you know, and sometimes it is a job, but I want to outlive that with him. And then at some point it's going to be really cool if our grand great grandkids hear a song that we wrote like 50 years ago yeah. in a car or a bar and um 
I mean, they outlive us, the songs do. So yeah. I, that's, it was sort of my depressing, morbid, romantic song you to him. You have such a different impression of your music <laughs> than I do. I guess it's I do. It's so funny. You come in that's and you're like, ah, oh, sorry, man. I hit you with the bum notes. And I'm sitting there listening to background music and I'm like, oh, I wish more artists would recognize and acknowledge that, they're, 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 that life is complicated and making art is really just a piece of the jigsaw. I don't think you get there either with the level of understanding that you have that um, unless you have an incredible imagination or more to the point, you have a success like you had with the middle where you're able to take a step back and say, okay, you can't manufacture that. Like, and if you try, you know, you'll be in background music way quicker than the, than the flip side of that. And so I wonder how much that kind of ultimately informed that newfound confidence in just life over art or over success. Yeah. I think just not being able to do what I thought was success for two years um, because everything is so linear. It's like, okay, we've had this song. It went number one. Now we go and play bigger theaters and now we play amphitheaters and now we go up to arenas. And it was just like, I could already map out my life for the next 15 years. And I'm not on it, but I, I just saw it all happening and then it came to a grinding halt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and It's so funny. It's like, what do you mean we're not on the middle world tour anymore? Like, Yeah, that train uh, left the station and then immediately derailed. So yeah, I was definitely like, we're all idiots for thinking that this was going to go on forever the way it was. But I mean, I think that I just don't take it for granted. Yeah, And I think all of us don't anymore. We've all had a little teaspoon of uh, reality and realizing that, oh my gosh, we all had it so good, didn't we? Well, it's just knowing it for what it is, right? At the end of the day, every now and then, um, there's a moment, it doesn't even have to be in music, it can just be a moment in time where the world gets smaller mm -hmm. and really, really small for the people who created it or are part of it, you know? And then, and then sometimes it's not even good. A lot of times it's really bad, <laughs> especially now. It's like, wow, the world's really small. I'm being closed in on. And, it, and we see it all day, every day now because we're also interconnected through technology and whatnot. And so for you to have had that experience and come off the back and know that, like you said, you know, there's more to life than that. It's like, yeah. what an amazing lesson. I, I feel like a lighter human being. And obviously, like, I want the music to reflect that. But yeah. I just don't sweat the small stuff anymore. Hmm. And... I could say some of that as being a parent as well, but honestly, I think that we're just so lucky to get to do this and listen to music, make music, um, write music, go to shows. It's I magic. Mean, it's actual magic. It was the most connected I ever felt. And had that being taken away, and I, I just feel like I'm just so ready to see people again. And not just as the artist, but like I miss going to shows as a fan. I miss standing in a crowd yeah. and just with strangers and yeah. just being all hearing the same vibrations having that moment yeah and feeling like yeah we're we're not so isolated and um but yeah it's it's been a lesson but i'm i am very excited and this record i mean as much heartbreak that happened before we even got into the studio with busby passing away i i could not have picked you know better people to make this with like mm. greg ryan Jimmy Robbins, Laura Veltz, Sarah Ahrens. Like there was just so many people. Julia, Julia as Michaels. Well. Julia, yeah. um, that was our first time ever writing. The two of you are so perfectly suited for one another because, you know, you are constantly searching for the conversation that you can bring to life. And Julia 
only writes in conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, I still can't figure out how she writes the way she does. She just did. She went, I still can't figure out how I write the way that I do. And that's the song. Yeah. And that's a Julia Michaels song. I yeah. mean, it's like, it's a gift, but it's also got to be a curse because every time she's having dinner with somebody, her brain's just going hit. Hit, yeah, yeah, hit, I got, I hit, got that one in the bank. Hook, hit, middle yeah. eight, hit, second verse, third, third line. I know she rambles in the most poetic way in her songs. I like can't figure out. I'm like so like rigid and structured. It's like the Nashville way. The coolest thing about her is the fact that is her intonation and her and the way she distributes the words and is able to make words fit where others could not. I I struggle to understand how she makes melodies and and emotion come. How she puts fourteen words in what is stru- structurally really a ten word frame. Yeah, I know. And with circles around this town, that second verse where I kind of name drop my church in 80s Mercedes, it was her idea to do the, I wrote, dead space, driving circles around. Like she, that's so her. And I will totally copy her in the song if she's the one writing it with me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, she's just got such a thing and she's, she's brilliant. You talk about having a really important team around you and you always, I feel like you've always kept your team very small and very focused. You may not remember, the first time we met was very brief. It was across the road in the in the main sort of business building of Apple Music and it was a knock on my door and I think it was David Dorn or someone came in and said, you got to meet Marin Morris. This is a big deal. And of course I knew who you were, but it was very early days. And what struck me was how immediately um, at the forefront of your team you were. That, that sometimes you meet artists and it's the team is doing the talking for them and ushering them in and making the introduction. In fact, that's more common than not, especially with new artists, understandably so. But you were at the tip of the spear. It was mm-hmm. like there was people flanking you, but you were right there. And I re- it really left a mark on me like, oh, wow, Marin is in charge. Like she's running the game. You know, was how much of that, and I mean this genuinely, how much of that was real and how much of that was bluff at the time? I think... It's so nice for you to say that. I think that I'm still the same. I mean, we've we've I've been with the same people on my team since my church or before. And I started so young, you know, performing and touring. I started when I was 10. I mean, if you had met me say when I was 16, you probably would have been like she's a nightmare. <laughs> like she's a mess. So, I think by the time my church came out, I was 26 and had a little bit better grip on what was going on. No one was running the show for me. So I I knew who I was even then. And I actually look back at that woman, you know, five, six years ago. And I'm like, God, where did all that confidence come from? And because uh, you like the chinks and the armor become plenty over time. Sure. But no, I, I definitely know who I am. And I know that I, I don't like people speaking on my behalf. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that gets me into trouble. But no, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely the, the, the one behind the wheel. And I think it's inspiring. And I think, you know, the conversations that you've thoughtfully inserted yourself into in order to add value have been very carefully chosen and you've done it in a, in a way that's authentic. Do you get nervous before you do? Is there a part of you that wants to hold you back for fear of judgment? Or is this a place where you feel totally fearless because of how you're raised and how you're built? I guess it depends on the match I'm lighting. But I, I think for the most part, I'm pretty steadfast. And I I think I've learned um, just through the last few years that not everything that you think needs to be in a tweet. <laughs> like there's ways to go about it. Yeah. A friend, of mine, are, a friend of mine describes it as being thoughtful with your thoughtfulness, which I love to use in my life as and when I can, which is you can have a thoughtful feeling and an approach to something, but are you being thoughtful in the way that you're approaching it for yeah. others involved? That's a very 
great practice and mindfulness. And I think we feel this urge because that app is just warm in our pocket and we can just shoot something Come off and people in. immediately know Come where you stand. Yeah. But it's also that enticement of like, everyone wants to know where you stand on everything, or at least you think they do. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they don't yeah. actually yeah. at all. Yeah. But yeah, there's just such a pressure to be like, oh my God, this other awful thing happened today. I need to immediately address it. And then you just like get out of that circle of thinking. And you're like, actually, I don't. And if I do, it doesn't need to be in, uh, you know, 200 characters or however much as a tweet. But sure. I, yeah, I want to be a lot more mindful with that. But I think people, if you are a fan of mine or have followed me, I mean, they know where I stand on on human rights you yes. know, issues. In credit to you, you, you say these things on a microphone with millions of people watching on a stage in front of your peers in an auditorium that is notorious for do what we want you to do, mm-hmm. be grateful and leave. You're standing up in a big way. It ain't just about the characters in the phone. I just want to right. say that. Are you talking about the CMAs? Yeah, um, and all the other times that you've, that, you've, that you've taken the opportunity to really use your voice in a positive way. I just want to give you credit for that. Thank you. Well, I mean, performing is fun on award shows, but sometimes it's like... What are we here for? And why is everyone white? <laughs> like, Correct. I mean, I'm only talking about country music, but um, yeah, that was a really astounding thing that I learned far too late. I think that Everyone's truly trying their best. And I am not, even though I know who I am and where I stand, like the the execution of it isn't always perfection. And <laughs> it, I guess it can never be because we're human. But one of the things that's always fascinated me a little bit about Nashville in particular is that there's this kind of general general feeling of artist ownership. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about contracts and business and whatever. That goes in every city and every part of the business. The psychology is universal. But there's something about like being inducted and being raised and inducted into Nashville as a writer where I've always felt there's a sort of underlying and perhaps at times even not even subversive sense of like, um, you stay here. Mm-hmm. You write with us, you speak for us, you represent us, you wear the jacket, you do these things. Mm-hmm. And it's always, I've always wondered like from, from an artist's point of view, and I feel like you're the, you're the right artist to, to ask this question to, how you sort of feel about that and, and how you're able to kind of strike your own independent place in the world when there's this kind of underlying pressure around the writing community and the songwriting community in this place that's like, you rip us. I wouldn't even say it's just the songwriting community. I feel like that's one of the most supportive springboards in Nashville. And it's just so tight-knit because most of it lives on two blocks of each other with Music Row. Um, So I feel like the songwriting community is very supportive. And yeah, I mean, I think because uh, there's been so many sort of cross-pollination of genres the last like 10 years, I would say, between pop, like we mentioned the middle, um, a lot of pop songwriters coming to Nashville and writing with, you know, country artists has been uh, very prevalent in the last few years. I feel like th- it's a lot more, it's not as homogenous as it used to be. But um, yeah. I think that, I don't know, I couldn't put my finger on it. Is it the labels? Is it publishers? Like, is it the fan base? I guess having that, like, you better be loyal to this or else we'll abandon you. Yeah, I feel like my carve out of my fans and like just the way I've been able to exist within the country music space is because 
from the get-go, I let everyone know where I stand. I didn't like hide it for a few years and wait for a couple hits to come under my belt and then tell everyone what I thought. And did you feel like an outlier or an outsider having to make that statement on your own behalf in order to be true to yourself? That Were there times when you were like, hmm, okay, this is a lonely road for a minute? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say every other day, it feels like a lonely road for a minute. Yeah. I, I've had to like really force myself out of my hermit shell, especially getting so used to being home for two years to like revisit my base of uh, friends that are writers and just like remembering, wow, we used to do this when we had zero things going on. And knowing that we are all there for each other and it's so easy to like disagree with people online or think that they have the most like perfect life highlight reel every day. But um, yeah, that's, that's one thing that I always have to force myself to do. And that's not just from politics or whatever we disagree on. Mm -hmm. I think the second you become an artist and it's going well, it becomes lonely. People stop inviting you to things because you're always busy, but it's your job as the person that's the busy one that's yeah, always yeah. out of town or whatever to say to them, yeah. like, hey, I am putting the line out there. I'm not gone. So please, if anyone's hanging out tonight, <laughs> like, invite me. <laughs> yeah. Talk about humble quest. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that they're like forgetting about you or they're not like cool with you anymore. It's just the fact that they think that you're probably yeah. busy doing what you love. Yes. Yeah, so to some degree, it's self-preservation. It's like, I can't continually not hear from you. It's like, right. I've got to get on with my life to some degree. Yeah. I've, I've had to be better about that in the recent years, especially when you have a kid. People just expect you to say no that much more. I know. It comes with this sort of caveat of like, well, you're a parent now, so you don't get invited to the Sunday barbecue. It's like, um, yeah, yeah. you know, I can just strap that kid onto my hip and move, right? Like, yeah, it's cool. Or get a sitter and go out. Totally. Um, yeah, I know. It's just like, okay, please. I'm not just a mom. <laughs> you and Ryan must have looked at each other at one point and just been like, wow, that's it, I guess, huh? We're now just in like parent isolation mode. Like, this. just... Yeah. Like, and like, add in postpartum and I'm just like, I have no friends. Like everyone's busy without me. I'm so me. sorry you went through that. I mean, I've had oh. friends who have gone through that and, and, and you know, and, and obviously you seem in an incredible space, you know, now. Um, but, you know, I, I, I know that can be really tough and also really tough to, for someone who's so in control because that's a very out of control experience, isn't it? Like, of course, that's out of anything you would want to control. It's getting yourself out of that mindset. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't happen with a snap um, no. or a therapy session or some like inspiring quote on Instagram. It's like you really have to take the time to help yeah. yourself. Yeah. Ryan has been so supportive and I just have taken stock of every part of my life. I think I tend to compartmentalize everything and make sure everyone's okay. Like, okay, family, <laughs> friends, just like fixer. down the list. <laughs> like, am I, have I responded to this person? And also knowing they're probably fine. <laughs> like they don't they don't need you to like come in with the cape every single time. Did you mix this album in, in spatial audio? Did you did you listen to it when it was sp split? Mm -hmm. into, you did? Yeah. Can I ask you uh, just how that felt when you listened to it? Because we're really big fans of this for obvious reasons, not only because we're invested in it, but because we actually think that sound was the last frontier of innovation in the modern age. Like everyone was in technology, logic audio, pro tools. Duh, right. duh, duh, duh. Over here, it's like distribution, streaming services, social media, all these other things have evolved, but sound like gone from two channels to multiple. And and it's really important that, that, that for me that I get that perspective from the artist because you're the one who has to listen to the emotion of your music at the end result. And I wondered yeah. how that experience has been hearing it sound different and come to life in different ways. Well, I mean, I kind of equate it because it's true. When I get um, mixes back, whether they're, 
I mean, they're, they're either in an MP3 file or they're in a WAV file. And so I kind of consider spatial audio being like listening. And streaming is tough because you're hearing it so compressed, so flat. And so to have something like spatial audio opening it up the way that your eardrum actually does hear both sides into one and it's streamlined, I feel like that's the most magical closeness we can get to experiencing it live with like those vibrations of what live music is. So yeah, and these songs being so um, low on like tracking and programming and it just being those airy instruments where you can hear the air in them space, was yeah. so important to have it in spatial audio because it, it wasn't going through this like sort of flat tracky logic world. I mean, yeah. it was, it was live instruments. So it was important to, 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 to do that the right way. There's a lot of amazing moments on this album that really are in tribute. And it's it, it, like love plays a big role on this record. And I'd love to hear it because it's hard to write about love in a genuine and honest way without tripping yourself up on the, in the, pro, in the process, right? Self-sabotage. Right. And I, and I, I refer to a song like the furthest thing, which is just one of the most beautiful kind of duets on the record, um, which is it, it's a strange love song in the sense that it's like an acceptance that through it all, we still somehow mean something to one another. But isn't that true love in, in, in itself? Yeah, I think that the the more the long, the more years that Ryan and I have been together and we've been together over five, but married for three and we have our son. But every year gets a little bit easier, I would say. I mean, I'm not an expert on love or relationships, but... Um, yeah, it just gets a little bit easier each year that you are secure and you just know each other. And I think that with the, the furthest thing, it was ironic we wrote that because we were seeing each other nonstop because there was no one else to talk to <laughs> during like 2020. But um, yeah, it was nice because I love songs. I mean about being on the road and just being proximity wise far from the person but then yeah just knowing that it's it's going to be okay this is all very very temporary so um i love you know after circles kind of kicking the album off with that one mm. and i think sonically i wanted it to feel really comforting because that's the content of the lyric but yeah Greg, I think it's one of my favorite song outros because it's a very long outro to that yeah, one. Yeah, it really lets it lilt and it leans into the space. It doesn't feel like it's like, oh, now for the music. It just feels like an extension of the last of the last word. Yeah, and there's no like chorus drop. It's just like very easy win to album three, I guess. So I got to talk to you about location because, um, you know, Greg Greg has this magic trick that he pulls this card in his pack, which he pulls out, which is like, want to come to Hawaii? And who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? So yeah. I, I sort of wonder how, um, given that, you know, like you said, this album has been with you for some time before we get to live with it and love it. Um, you know, how location played a role in it and how important it was for you, given 2020 was such a strange year, that you were able to find yourself in a safe space to create. I guess it was January of 2021. Mm -hmm. And so it was a full year of nothing. And then I had a few songs that I wrote in the fall and I sent them to Greg. And I, you know, obviously you'd be an idiot to not like work with Greg again because I worked with him on Girl. But this was, he only did a few songs on that record. So it was, I mean, we just hit it off. And um, so I sent him these demos. And then he was like, we're not in LA right now because it's kind of a ghost town. We're at our place in Hawaii. Would you and the family and Ryan want to come write with me here? 
And I was like, let me think about that. Duh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't even care. Did you bring your guitar? Oh, you know, I didn't. No. I bought my trunks though. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't even care about the writing at this point. Sorry, were we supposed to work? Is oh, that we I know. <laughs> and we were staying so close to him, we could get to his place by golf cart. And so I was just pinching <laughs> myself every day. I cursed it on a golf cart. I've got to see it. I was like, am I on like, the, I feel like I'm in the Truman Show or something. Like I'm going to wake up and realize this is all like a set. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I would just like listen to Sheryl Crow albums in my golf cart going to Greg's each day to go to, go to work. Yeah, so we kind of started the record process, the recording process in Hawaii. And so it was obviously visually stunning, but then just having this, they have such a family vibe. And I was very thrown because the day that we landed, um, like Dave Grohl came up to me and was like, are you Marin? And we all have our masks on. And Dave was like, I'm I'm Dave. And I was like, I know who you are. And I have my son in a stroller. And um, he and Greg are neighbors and they work a lot together. And then like all of a sudden, an hour later, they're like showing us the, the property and um, like Beck comes out of nowhere. And I was like, this is like the the like 90s rock island. This really is. Yeah. I've been on Maui and like Willie Nelson has a place there, Chris Christopherson. And if you go to Kauai, you'll find the Rick Rubin school of thought is like lined up out in Kauai. Like each island has its has own a, genre correct, of legends. Correct. <laughs> so Maui is like the country legend, outlaw, highwaymen, <laughs> yeah. island. And then this one was like Greg and Dave Grohl and Beck. And um, yeah, so I was like, this is going to be a great trip. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we like got a lot done there. A chance to kind of like, I suppose, just be alive and have a lifestyle there as well? Or were you working? Was it all work? No, it was definitely 50-50. We would work and then we would have these big like group dinners every night. Amazing. And Greg's wife, Rachel, who manages him, like he, she would just plan dinners every single night. And so we would just work for a few hours in the morning, go to dinner, like all the kids are there. And then we would just go to bed and write the next morning. So it was such an amazing like, healing place. And it felt so safe to be there at yeah. that time because it was an island, literally isolated from everything. And they were just super safe about lockdown and um, protocols. So I, I felt like I could create really safely. Was there a song or a moment that made it to the album that really is kind of a special memory for you being out there? What What, what is the song that came from that time that you think really best sums up that period of writing and creating? Um, the Furthest Thing was written there and recorded there. And then um, I Can't Love You Anymore, which is my big one. kind of John Prine. Um, That's a big one. <laughs> Iris Dement callback. Um, yeah, so those were both written there. And then, you know, Greg, just me living in Nashville and then him being remote either way, whether it's LA or Hawaii, we've always kind of worked in spurts. And so he came to Nashville last summer to kind of finish stuff up and, uh, we wanted to be in person for that. And Cheryl Crow was kind enough to let us use her barn studio. She's the best. Oh, my God. I mean, she, I, I obviously have been a, a freak fan of hers since I was a kid. But then she was on the Highway, or the High Women album. And then, um, yeah, she just like threw out one day, I think during the High Women stuff, she was like, if you ever want to use my barn studio, like, feel free. I lend it out to friends. And so when Greg and I were trying to think of studios for when he got to Nashville, I was like, I'm going to see if she was being for real. And so I, yeah, she was kind enough to let us use her place that week. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just a dream. And then we, yeah, finished up stuff. 
Greg tracked his first ever steel and dobro and um, mandolin. <laughs> Which he's now mastered, by the way. Such yeah. as Greg Kirsten's ability with music and any instrument. It's like, have you ever recorded flute, Greg? He's like, well, I, I don't know if I've ever... I know. Like, yeah, like immediately this, like creates jazz flute of the highest level. Right. Yeah, like this makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> oh my God. He's a freak. I've never met someone like him who has so much under his belt. Just if we're talking hits, Grammys, just successes at that rate. Yeah. Um, who has no idea how cool he is. Or maybe he <laughs> does. And he's just a, a great, confident well, man. But it's the I, art of yeah. a great uh, facilitator, producer, collaborator. Art yeah. director, stylist, anybody who's in the service industry to help yes. artists to find themselves. <laughs> to hone their voice. It is their job to uh, present <laughs> such an image of, of one, which is to say that you think I don't know how cool I am, yeah. but I have a fairly good idea. It's just not my business to show you that I know how cool right. I actually so am. So he keeps it together. Um, he's keeps just so together. easy, easy to be around. But I think I made him like a Nashville convert because they bought a place after that trip. Amazing. Well, how could you not be? I mean, as far as Nashville, the city goes, I mean, it's one of the most amazing cities I've ever been to in my life. And and not for all the obvious reasons for the the beautiful landscape and the lush greenery and all the things that go with it. But because there is sort of a sense of real self-awareness there, I feel. I feel mm. people are self-aware enough to know there's other people living there. Yeah, it, it's it's our big little town um, because it's obviously expanded so much in the last 10 years. I mean, I moved here 10 years ago and it's it's changed. But yeah, I still just couldn't imagine myself living elsewhere. I mean, I love coming to LA. I love New York. I love London. I went for a month this past fall with my son and just got to kind of get out for a second. But yeah, Nashville... I'll always have that address. <laughs> I got to ask you why you chose to go to London as a getaway um, after two years of, of sort of pandemic living. Why you choose? Why you chose to went to the you know the the industrial revolution capital of the last two hundred years? Right. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like we didn't go off to the country. We went to like another city. Um, I don't know. I think I just have a really special bond there. I have so many amazing memories in London. Like just going as a teenager and then kind of working my way up from playing, mm. you know, the borderline, which is a club that's not there anymore, to um, Shepherd's Bush, mm. to Royal mm. Albert Hall. Mm. So I just have this like lineage there of um, moments with my career. I don't know, after like 18 months of haze and COVID, I just was like, if I had to throw a dart at the map right now and go somewhere, I want to go there. So I went for a month. Amazing. And we were right next to like Hyde Park. And so I could just take Hayes there every day. And then it really wasn't work at all. I just got to hang and be sort of this blend in the crowd anonymous person. And I'm so glad have, you did that. Have way too many martinis at Duke's Bar. <laughs> and oh my God, just all the things. And I went out to the country. My friend has a house out there. We went on a pheasant hunt. It was very British. Um, and yeah, and it just kind of like filled my cup back up because yeah. I was so drained. And then Greg actually sent me the final mixes and masters when I was in London. Wow. And I just, I literally... How did you listen to them? What did you do? What was the moment? Because if I'd got those, I'd have been like, all right, like, how do I, where am I when yeah. I press play on this? Yeah. So it was drizzling as it does uh, outside. And I just went to this, I guess it's like a little cafe with like covered um, outdoor tables 
And I just listened in the rain. It was so emo. Uh, to did the, you get emo? Album. I was very choked up. You I mean, by the end, to. what a scene, what a moment. You'll yeah. never forget that. Yeah, I was like, when will I ever again get to listen to an album of mixes for the first time in a place like this? It's always usually while like, it's drizzling. In my, yeah. Oh my god, you get to like, what would this world do in the drizzle of Hyde Park? Forget. Oh about yeah, it. the tears were flowing. Steve's gonna say, "Stop lying, Marin. Choked up is an understatement. You were bawling like a baby." I'm sure the people around me were very confused. Confused. Is that Mary Morris crying to her own music right now whilst drinking Can you imagine? a cup of tea out here in Hyde Park? <laughs> no, you got to. You got to love what you do. And it's all for me. It's always been an interesting part of the conversation space when I talk to artists that that, that idea around trade mm. is a strange one because you, okay, you get the real joy. You get the process. You get to write, record and, and get it out and, and feel that experience, right? we get the result, which we then apply to our life. And that's that's the normal trade. But right. what, what's made me a little melancholy throughout the years is the amount of times I've asked artists whether or not you can appreciate your own music. And the answer is like, after release, no, I can't really listen to it. And I think, what a strange detail. Hmm. Like, <laughs> not being able to listen to your own music the way that we do is like, it's almost sort of like the great, sadness in the, in the experience, you know? Yeah, it's like when actors can't watch themselves at the premiere. Yeah. Um, but that's a little different because a lot of a lot of times actors aren't in control, right? So you do your part. And it's not them. It's not them. But also, even the work they do is handed to someone else and they, they don't see the edit until the end. And how many times have actors said, it was a great movie until I saw the movie, <laughs> right? You know, you know <laughs> or what what's I mean? the story of the uh, Terrence Malick movie that like Adrian Brody took his parents to the premiere and didn't realize they edited him him out of the entire film. I didn't know that. It's, I think it was him, but he like goes so excited. He's in a Terrence Malick film and they cut him from the entire thing. I don't know all the actors for that to happen to. I mean, he's a modern day Shakespearean bard, that guy. It was before I mean? the Oscar, but oh my God, I was, how humbling. It's very humbling. But yeah, I mean, that idea that, you know, once you finish it, it's, and the, and the, the argument is always, well, we get to play it live, but it's not the same. Like that collection of thoughts and emotions that you were able to gather in that period of your life, um, that you that you have to let it go. Maybe yeah. there's something beautiful about that. I don't know. I mean, I get it because it is sort of self-indulgent once it's out and you you sing them every night on tour. So you kind of get to relive them each day and like have different variations of it. I, I had to go back and it was for an Apple thing. I was talking to Kelly Bannon in Nashville because it was like the five-year anniversary of my album Hero. Yeah. And I had to listen to it front to back and I hadn't listened to it probably in four years, but um, I just drove around and I listened to it because, you know, we were going to talk about Busby and I just like lost it. I mean, exactly what we're talking about. Just crying in the car to my own songs, reliving all these moments, how raw that record was and how, I mean, I hate saying this, but I truly believe it. Um, it was ahead of its time and it kind of paved the way for a lot of, you know, women in the genre, but I, uh, I had just hadn't picked it up again. And, um, yeah. So it was like, who is this girl? Like, how did she, how did I do this? Well, and you touched on something really special there, I think, which is that, and it's the closest thing actually to the answer that I've been searching for, for like 30 years, which is that it's just maybe important that you don't go back regardless of whether you're sick of the songs, which is the stock response. I've never bought it. Right. I think, you know, if you get to a place where you really complete that thought and you're willing to, and it helps you grow, mm -hmm. it may not be the right thing to go back and remind yourself who you were all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, it can be kind of triggering to do that. Um, like, I just wonder, you know, if we're talking about like Paul McCartney, like, does he go back and listen to Revolver <laughs> <laughs> and get like the butterflies or does he just cringe? And to your point, maybe it's a place you get to eventually when you've traveled enough. And I mean, you, you're just... I, this is the crazy thing, Marin. I feel like you're just getting started. Isn't that, is that a bad thing to say? I hope you're right. I, I hope that this is, I think with every album, it's just a new layer that's unpeeled and then new fans discover it. And then they go back to your previous work and discover that. And um, yeah, I mean, it just gets to me, you know, the writing quality, just the assuredness gets better. And so that's why I think I think it is getting started. I think so because what we've talked about even just in the last hour, which is about acknowledging, even going as far back or as not so far back as one of the last things you just said about that album being ahead of its time. I love that you acknowledge that. Artists should totally recognize their place in the lexicon in real time. Mm -hmm. It comes too late in life and then you're like, oh, I already did great things 50 years ago. It's like, no, 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 this really worked five years ago and yeah. a lot's changed. So to acknowledge that, but also be at the start of this humble quest of like, real discovery of like what it is to grow rather than what it is to shout mm -hmm. about causes or what it is to kick doors open or what it is to be in control or all the other things, right? We've heard you write about and, and put yourself through. Like, wow, what are you going to do with this material when you have no idea what's coming next? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's definitely the first chapter of it. And I am so proud of it. I feel like there's just no piece of it that I second guessed for the first time. And I feel, I don't know, I, I just am really excited to see what people think of it. And I obviously love it. Um, and it's very close to me and my story. I think that I've kind of gotten rid of that fear of it being far too specific and autobiographical to be relatable to a mass of people. I just don't really think about that anymore. And maybe that was why it was such a freeing project to do was because if it's relatable to whatever you're going through, obviously you've heard it and you said it was. I, I think that's great, but ultimately it comes down to what I feel when I hear it and when I made it. So I'm really proud of it. Thanks for listening. You can catch Marin's radio show, Humble Quest Radio, on Apple Music Country, inside Apple Music. Zane will be back next time for another conversation. Take care.